So I wanted to talk tonight a little bit about a teaching (coughs) that I've carried around with me for a long time now. And it's one of those teachings that it's so easy to learn, you can put it in your pocket and you'll have it maybe for the rest of your life. And it's one that periodically comes back to me as it did in these last few days to consider when I come into some particular space in my life where things are shifting or something's going on. And so I mentioned it for those of you who were here at the beginning of the sitting. It's a teaching from Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was a great Thai meditation teacher who died not all that long ago, in the 90s, in the early 90s, I think. And um, so many people we know have sat with him and studied with him, and um, he had a lot to do with training Westerners to practice. And has written some really good books, if you're into doing some study. Um, And in this particular teaching, it's so simple. He says, there's nothing to do, and there's nowhere to go, and there's no one to be. And that's it. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, and no one to be. And tonight, I'm going to talk about it a little, and then I particularly want to talk about it with relationship to fear and anxiety, which is a state that comes up for so many of us and actually counters that open heart place that we've been talking about in recent weeks. Pretty hard to have an open heart when you're scared, you know, most of us can't do that. So it's interesting, and I try to remember to reflect on this when I sit, Um, how wonderful it is to have nothing to do. And most of us live lives where we have so much to do, and it's gotten so much more complicated with all of our technical equipment. So it's pretty hard to even go on a vacation without your phone or your computer letting you know that this or that is going on at the lab or the office or at Papasana Santa Cruz, all those kinds of things. And so we're constantly, constantly doing, as gets quoted very frequently, you know, we've become human doings and not human beings. And a lot of our identity, a lot of our sense of self gets caught up in what it is that we do. You know, usually if someone says, who are you? You might give them your name, but then almost certainly the second thing that you do is you give them what you do. And when you reach that point in life, either intentionally or because of the economy, when you don't have something that you do, it can be a really difficult thing to sit with because we are so identified with what it is that we do. So when we sit, we are intentionally entering into not doing. If you, did, if you did nothing else, <laughs> if you did nothing else in the sitting except to not do, it would be very useful to just practice not doing. Somebody um, who sits with this group off and on has for a long time over the years, 
said to me once that she had taken on the practice of coming home at night after her work day and taking, I think it was a short period of time, 10 minutes or 15 minutes, and not doing anything. And she said it was the hardest practice that she'd ever done to not do anything. Because even if you're sitting there, the mind pretty soon starts thinking, well, let's see, what do I need to do when I go to the supermarket tomorrow or at my work or whatever? And pretty soon you're doing, it's, it's all in here, not, you know, physical doing, but nonetheless we're doing. And so to really not do is um, a very challenging practice because it, it takes away a whole set of the structures that we create self around. So he also says there's nowhere to go. And again, it's that way in which most of the time we have somewhere to go. And certainly when we sit, we often have some sense of, okay, I'm going to sit, maybe I won't do anything, but I am going to get somewhere, right? And so maybe where you're going to get is a quiet mind, or maybe you're going to get concentration, or maybe you're going to have your heart open, or maybe you're going to come to some place of forgiveness. We have this goal, we have this place that we want to get. And we get very into leaning out into what is sometimes in the teachings called becoming. We are always becoming. We're very rarely back here where we are. And if you pay attention to the mind, it can be quite interesting because you can begin to feel the mind lean out. You know, you're just sitting there trying to be a good kid, trying to be with your breath and your body and not go anywhere. And the next thing you know, the mind's just going out into what's that? What's that noise? Or who just came in the door? Or something. And then we're off and we're leaning out into the next thing, leaning out into the next moment. We're going somewhere. And Buddhadasa suggests that when we let go of that and just sit with what is, just sit with where we are, just sit with here, you know, any of you who have sat with Gil know that he often gives that wonderful instruction on the first night or so of a practice, and he talks about here. The Pali word is ida. And that's a nice sound to it, you know, ida. And it's just come back here. Don't go anywhere. And what happens when you put your attention just here? Here might be a mess. Maybe you're sad or you're restless or you're unhappy or you're feeling really angry or unenlightened or whatever. But nonetheless, that's the place to do the practice is here with what is going on in the body, what is going on in the heart and the mind. Not out there and not with any agenda to get anywhere. I was laughing with somebody this week. We were talking about how when we um, started practice, there was always that sense that at some point you would go, in those days there were old students' retreats, 
And so you would go to the old students' retreat, or sometimes I would go to retreats down in Yucca Valley, um, where the old students, that meant people who'd sat, you know, five or six retreats, would have a special meeting with Jack Cornfield after the Dharma talk. And I used to sneak in and sit because I thought maybe I was going to hear the special secret teachings about where it was that you got to go if you practiced long enough. And I was really disappointed because it was the same questions and the same conversations that we were having in the bigger group. Maybe with a little more sophistication, I suppose, and looking back on it, I could say that, although I don't know at the time I realized it. And, and so, you know, spare yourself. There are no special secret teachings. There are no instructions that you get at retreat number 10. It's the same old, same old. It's just that you begin to hear it differently, but you hear it differently because you're here and you've settled into the present and you're not reaching out trying to go somewhere. And then, of course, that last wonderful instruction about there's no one to be, which can sound kind of scary, and it is sometimes. And I was reflecting as I was thinking about talking about this tonight. Some years ago, I gave up, I was about to give up my practice as a psychotherapist in order just to teach. And, you know, I had a license and I had an office and I had clients and, and then I had decided, okay, it was time to let all of that go. And it was huge because this fear came up about, well, who are you going to be? I mean, a meditation teacher? Hmm. That doesn't carry a lot of weight in our culture. And, you know, sometimes I would, in the middle of the night, I would end up sitting in front of my altar for a while because I just was so frightened at this thought of, well, who? You know, who's in there if it's not the psychotherapist? You know, wasn't really trusting that there was any identity. There shouldn't be any identity in being a meditation teacher. And there isn't really any solid identity anywhere. And when we practice, we can practice letting go of it. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, you come in here even, and you walk in the door, and you know, not only do you leave your shoes out there, but in a very real sense, you leave your identity out there. You know, we don't, you look around the room, and I actually, I know a number of you fairly well, and I don't know much about your identity in the world, for most of you. Little bits and pieces, you know. See Gory at the gym. I know Andrea is a psychotherapist, and there's a few things I can put my finger on, but there's a lot I don't know because that's not what matters here. Or if you go on a retreat, you know, you know about the color of people's socks, and you know what they breathe like in the hall, and you know whether they eat bananas or apples on their cereal in the morning, but you don't know. You know, are they a doctor or are they a mom or you know, you don't know anything about them, really. And it's wonderful to have a period of time when you set aside that identity, because that identity gets really rigid and solid, and, and it, um, it can imprison us, you know, that sense of I'm, 
I am a person who. It's a very dangerous phrase, actually. So up until today, I would have said to you, I'm a person who has never colored her hair or had anything done to it, you know. And now I'm sitting here thinking, oh, I wonder what they're thinking. You know, meditation teachers with purple hair, that's not too common. And so we could play with that, you know. Have I taken on a whole new identity? Well, maybe. There's that. Or am I letting go of something? There's that. But in either case, none of it is solid or permanent or has a whole lot to say about anything. It's just right now there's purple hair that's manifesting on top of this old head. And maybe you'll all join me next week. I don't know. You know, we'll see. So, so we, it's, it's very interesting to begin to look at how we create identity and what it is that you hold on to as your sense of self. Because the news isn't good. It won't last. And in the end, you have to let it go. No matter how hard you've worked, no matter how many dollars you've made, or how carefully you've raised your children, or how many PhDs you have, in the end, like everything else, it goes. Which is not to say don't do it. It's just that when we cling to it and we um, make it so rigid, then we create a lot of suffering. So, as I considered this this week, then I also began to think about how it is and what it is that happens when we're afraid. And, and really beginning to see that, so a couple things to say actually about fear, maybe before I say that. Fear is almost never about the present moment. In the present moment, you cope. No matter what's happening, if you're being in an accident, if something is happening to you, if something's happening to someone you love, the fear is always about what's going to happen next. But if, you know, if the truck is coming towards you or the lion's about to jump on you, you're busy getting yourself out of the way, right? And it's not to say you're happy, it's not to say there's not adrenaline, but that's not the fear that we're talking about. Uh, the fear that is difficult and debilitating is about what happens next. Jack Cornfield used to like to say, you know, if the bear has your elbow, you're worried about what's going to happen when he grabs my head. But you're dealing with the pain in your elbow. And fear, if you really begin to look at it, is sometimes helpful. You know, it is really useful to know that you need to get out of the way of oncoming traffic or someone who looks threatening, those kinds of things. But a lot of the time, our fear and anxiety is not so useful, is it? It turns out to be mm, often even ungrounded, or things aren't quite so difficult as we thought they were going to be. Of course, once in a while, they're worse than they thought we thought they were going to be. But the, the picture that we have of out there is just a picture. And so it's be worth beginning to consider that fear is a mind state, like many other mind states. And it comes and it goes. And if you actually begin to pay attention to it, if you have something going on that's creating some ongoing anxiety, you begin to see that 
fear will go through in waves. You know, what will the diagnosis be? <gasps> Maybe I'm headed out of here in a few months. And then, you know, things calm down a little and life goes on and then another wave comes through. And some of you, I'm sure, have had that experience of seeing how, how the fear goes through in waves. And as you begin to pay attention to it as a mind state, you see that it's a mind state that is aversive and it's contracted and it's really tight. And it's often about, I won't know what to do, I won't know where to go, and I won't know who to be. It's really interesting to, be, to begin to look at that, that those are threads that are very, very common in a lot of fear about what will I do and how will I be? Maybe I'm not going to be. And so the, the heart and the body and the mind contract rather than open. So when we practice with these really simple practices of, of not doing and not going anywhere and letting go of our identity, even for a brief period of time while you're sitting on the cushion, it actually is practice that helps us with those moments of anxiety when we realize, oh, I don't know who I'm going to be. Some, some of this is up, many of you know this, because I'm headed off to Burning Man next week for the first time. I have a husband who's been for 11 years, and now I'm going with him for the first time as a 12th year. And so, who will I be? And how will I be? And what will happen? And there's a lot of fear and anxiety in it for me, and a lot of worry about, you know, is this the right place for me, and what if I hate it, and you know, all of that. So that's my particular story this week. Each of you has your own, and, and each of us has our own anxiety. And each of us, mm, we can get caught in that, but it's not such a skillful state, because out of that contracted, fearful place is often, it's a place where we're reactive, where we act unskillfully, where we do things that we later regret. And so it's not a helpful place in the mind and the heart to be caught in fear like that. And so practicing to be able to ride that wave, somebody said tonight as they came in that the surf was up, so, you know, to ride that particular big wave that comes along sometimes, is, is really to be able to ride with, it might be okay not to know who you are, you know, for a while. Not to be uncertain, who, what am I in this situation? I don't know how to be in this group of people. I don't know how to be in this new job. I don't know how to be in this new relationship. What would happen if you could just not have an identity for a little while and let the the situation begin to form who you are in that particular moment, which is then a much more flexible, much more malleable kind of sense of self. I don't know where to go, you know, I don't know what direction to go in. And, and so to, to, again, practice not, not having to be directed, but to be more open to whatever possibilities show themselves in any particular moment. And then not to have something to do. There's so much that we miss because we have so much to do. You know, I can't talk to you, I can't listen to this, I can't look at that because I have something to do. And, and, and that place of not doing 
you know, and really getting comfortable with it instead of afraid of it actually allows a lot more options to open. So this is actually a way to work at keeping the heart open. We've been talking about loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity and not doing and not going in um, a particular direction all the time and not having a you know, really strong, rigid identity are all ways that actually deeply contribute to keeping the heart open and to being able to be present, to be awake. So I'm going to stop there. We've been having a lot of fun in the last few weeks with some questions and comments, and so I'd like to leave plenty of time, a little less this week than recently, but some time for your comments and your wonderings and what, what comes up for you when you hear this and think about dealing with your own fear and anxiety and doing and goals and identity. So, the floor is yours. Gary, please. Well, since I just retired, I sort of left an identity. You definitely have, yeah. So it's kind of really a trip to retire. I mean, I'm like <laughs> trying to figure out what my new identity will be. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, um, and I really realized pretty profoundly that it isn't, that isn't it, that I don't need to grasp my new identity. Right. And if I don't, I'll be lucky. <laughs> yeah. When you said that, I was remembering Suzuki Roshi's um, statement in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, where he says, in the beginner's mind there are many possibilities, and in the mind of the expert there are few. So when you have a career that you're in the middle of, you kind of have one thing that you're doing a lot of the time. But now you're retired. You could do anything that your body is still capable of doing. Obviously some limits, but yeah. And you don't, you could do something one day and then do something else the next for a while. What did you say you're going to? Burning Man. Big festival in the desert. You were going to? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. No, oh, no. Burning Burning man, <laughs> along with most of Santa Cruz, I think. Mm. <laughs> Anyone else? Please.
So, what do you do for a living? Which mm. tends to be like the first question out mm-hmm. there, and not how we tell somebody else, just by what they do for money. And I hate that. Um, so, so I, it just, mm-hmm. I just, I didn't really have that awareness, I think, until you were thinking about how that is one of the things I like about coming <coughs> to a place like this that's spiritually oriented, is I, I don't um, have to engage in that sort of what's your identity, what's your identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a tricky thing. This whole sense of identity and self, and it's very very deep, because pretty much as soon as there's another person in the room, or another being in the room, or the idea of another being in your mind, there already starts to be some sense of identity. It's really interesting, and. Um, and we need it. You know, it's probably useful that you know where to go tonight to go home and go to bed and, you know, your address. And, and in fact, it's probably useful that you know whose shoes are yours out there when you go out to put them on. So there is a way in which in time and space, the normal sense of identity is very helpful. And then there are all these places that we suffer a lot because of it. Um, and as we begin to kind of, it's almost like you're peeling layers off of identity. Um, which isn't to say that you can't use them when they're useful, but to not, mm, I think that using them is different from being identified with them. Yeah. Heidi, please. Um, I always find the, the what do you do question kind of funny because I feel like it's just that when, when and I'm someone's advocate too, and I, I definitely mm-hmm. did. But it's like we're, we're trying to just be able to pigeonhole a person and, and to not have to think further. It's kind of, it, 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 it simplifies, it oversimplifies and flattens a person's identity. And I've never that much identified with, I've had so many careers in my life that it's like, feel like when people have asked me, well, what do you do? And then I say, and then they feel like, ah, oh, well, now I, now I, you know, got your number. And um, so, it, it, you know, I retired in the, in early in, in the year. And um, so I found it kind of funny when now people ask me what I do, and I say, well, I'm retired now. And then they say, well, what did you do before you retired? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like you're still trying to find a way to... Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Slot you in, yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. So maybe we could start a revolution by coming up with a different question. Yeah. What's your sign? <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting here, for some reason what's floating through my mind as you're all talking tonight is how many times I've heard people say about being here in this particular community, and probably you could generalize it to all Buddhist communities, how much they love being in a community where people are concerned with keeping the precepts, not harming, not taking, all those things, and that that you know, that focus on waking up and, and living in a way that's careful becomes what's important to talk about. 
So maybe we don't have to ask the question at all, except it's nice to have a name, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we really want, isn't it? Is that sense of... And so again, hmm, thinking aloud a little bit, but we've been talking about that kind of open-hearted quality. And often when I talk about times when I've been able to be in fairly close proximity to the Dalai Lama, one of the things I've talked about is the way that he tends to make eye contact. And he looks at you and it's like he goes, hi. He doesn't actually go hi, but you kind of feel like he is. And you get it that he really sees you in there, just for a little moment. And of course, people just melt, right? They just turn into butter around him. Because that's what we want, is that sense that somebody sees us and knows us. So who are you is about as good as it gets on the streets, or what do you do? And, and maybe as practitioners to think about, is that what people really want, or is that they want, you know, can we all go around? You know, I've often given people the homework, go be the Dalai Lama for a day. You know, really look at people, really say hi in there and just see how it feels. Just try it on as a career path, you know. Be the Dalai Lama. Who are you? I'm being the Dalai Lama today, thank you. <laughs> yeah. You you had one. Yes, Linda. <laughs> it is, yeah. Yes, Andrea. Might even, might even be a bit of identity in itself. So what Andrea is referring to is a, is a technique that I use sometimes when, I don't use it, haven't really used it on Thursday nights, but I tend to use it a lot in the committed students group where we work with a repeating question. And, um, and so the question might be, 
you know, tell me something that you're identified with. And of course, the first three answers pretty much take care of all the things that you really know. And then it goes on for another five or ten or if it's, if it's a really tough night, fifteen minutes. And so then you have to start letting whatever answers come to the surface come to the surface. And what's very interesting is it can go quite deep because sometimes things start floating up that you didn't know were there. So um, it's a way of, of getting through some of those initial identifications and notions of this is the kind of person I am. Because we're so, you know, you could all, you could probably write a 10-page paper on who you are. Because we know, you know, you know what kind of food you like and what kind of bed you sleep in and what kind of neighborhood you like to live in and what kind of animals and people you share your lives with. And, and it just goes on and on and on. I am a person who. And what happens if you let go of all of that? Please. I haven't had a single career for I don't know, maybe in 10 years. Uh-huh. So when people ask me that question, and having had a, you know, a substantial career in the past, I mean, I know what they want, but I'll just go, well, I do lots of things, and what I'm enjoying doing now is this or this or this. Uh-huh. And um, at first, after I didn't have any career, it was pretty, I felt fairly intimidated that I couldn't you know, do my shit or tell them but it just became very light and fun to just go, you know, this is what I'm doing now, and, right. you know, I also like this, and just make it a bigger question. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And you're probably a bigger person. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I think, to, for me, it was just a really simple question of asking, what brings you joy? Uh-huh. What brings That's you joy? Great. You get to know uh-huh. a lot. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it might be different each time you ask. Which is one way to begin to see that this is all very fluid, this sense of self and identity. And who you are today might be very different from who you will be next week, or who you were, you know. I mean, it's very interesting, isn't it? All of us look around the room, most of us, a couple of young people, but, you know, so you we go through this aging process, and doesn't feel any different inside, really. You know, I'm a little smarter, maybe, but a little savvier. But mostly I feel like me, right? Same me. And except then I look in the mirror and I go, oh, hmm, you know, something's happening. And it's changing. So, and, and I know that there's also been all kinds of lives and identities over the years that keep shifting and changing and probably will until I'm not here anymore. And then that's some bigger kind of change. So, well maybe, please, one more. You know, I was just thinking, I think when people ask these questions, there's so many reasons somebody can be asking these questions. Right. I mean, for me, I, because I often ask the question, what do you do, where are you from, or if I meet somebody who I know is a student and what are you studying, it's basically Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of it, 
that's true. And so that's actually the paradox of it, isn't it? So we all of us have things that we do, you know. And, and it's, it isn't like there's anything wrong with saying, what do you do? The, or even saying, this is what I do. It's that really interesting place where you, you know, close down around it and create that identity and get so locked into it that the thought of not having it becomes really terrifying. And, and so that's the place to kind of see what happens if you begin to open that hand and let go and be a little more fluid about, yes, I'm a teacher or a therapist or a meditation teacher or an engineer, and I haven't always been and I won't always be. All of that is true. Yeah. All right. So let's stop, I think. Um, There's just a couple of announcements. Um, On Saturday, there is a day-long retreat. It's at Tangpulu Kaba'ai Monastery up in Boulder Creek. Um, Bob Stahl is teaching it. Oh, great. More flyers. Um, And... um, it's, it grew, it's grown out of his class that's gone on for the last three weeks on the Burmese forest tradition, but it's open to anyone. So if you weren't able to do the class and you would like um, both a day with Bob on Saturday and also really a kind of a really inexpensive trip to Burma, this is it. Just go to Boulder Creek, go to Tangpulu Kaba'ai, and um, you've got it. And then we are... Um, a couple of things are coming up. I don't have one here. The committed students group, which I mentioned in the talk, um, we're taking registrations for. It's called the Heart of the Buddha's Teaching. It's uh, the flyers are over on the table. It's for people who've had some practice experience. But if you're interested, look at the flyer. And if you're not sure that you're qualified or not, send me an email and we'll sort it out. Um, you need to register with me in order to be in that class. And then Bob is now, um, Bob's being busy. He's got um, his annual 32 parts of the body class is going to start in September. And so it's a class that meets Friday mornings. It's working with a very traditional practice of the 32 parts of the body. And everybody I know who's been in that class, and some people I know have been in it many times, have really found it helpful. And I would really encourage you to think about it if you're available on Friday mornings and um, can do it. And then he's also doing just a simple mindfulness day long on September. What does that say? (laughs) I got my glasses. September 18th. 18th. Thank you. Somebody with glasses, please. So that's just a meditation day long here at the center. So those things are all coming up. The flyers, uh, we're playing around with different arrangements for the library. So tonight the flyers and the table with the bulletin board that has the flyers on it are a little bit to the back of the room. So um, you can check it out. We're trying to make it more library-like and user-friendly. So... Any other announcements? Next week is uh, Beginner's Night. Next Thursday night is Beginner's Night. 
anyone would like to bring cookies, that would be appreciated. And also, I'm attempting to give up my role as cookie and tea um, guru. <laughs> so if anyone would like to volunteer to do some volunteering, it's not a huge it's chunk of time. Julia's just going back to graduate school, so she's shedding some identity and assuming some new identity. So, um, and it's really, really helpful if anyone can offer to just kind of track that once a month to make sure there's some cookies and tea. So, and I think, if I remember rightly, Jason will be teaching. And then the week after, you can come back and it, somebody said, oh good, you're going to Burning Man, there will be lots of stories. So there probably will be a few Burning Man stories, who knows. So. Will there be slides? Will there be slides? <laughs> <laughs> you want pictures? Uh, we could probably see to it that there might be a picture or two. So. All right, let's end with just a little bit of loving-kindness practice. Oh, Bill, you're back there. Do you want to say anything about the... Do, you, do we know anything about the state of the treasury before I let people... Uh, not recently. We don't. Pardon? Okay. So we, we hope that maybe we'll not be so behind soon, so in case we have to catch up, we can do so. Okay. All right, so let's... Just sit comfortably, bring some awareness into the mind and heart and body. And in some, some simple way, extend some goodwill, some friendliness into your own being. With a wish for being peaceful and protected, being healthy. being contented. I wish to be able to find freedom in all moments. Just wishing those things and any other kind and friendly wish for yourself. yourself be aware of all the people seated around you, knowing that each person here wants to wake up and that each person here suffers, and to reach out with friendliness and kindness to each other, again with wishes for peace and ease of well-being, freedom. Then let your attention go on out even farther, out into the world, to the people whom you know and love, share your lives with. Again, extending your goodwill, your caring, your wishes for their well-being. And then, in the end, letting your heart open to the whole world, to all of the people, to all of the creatures who share this world with us, 
out in all directions and all realms throughout the cosmos to all beings. And then we gather up all of the goodness of our evening of practice, all of its happiness and joy, all of the ways that we've been nourished. We take it in and then we offer all of this goodness to all of these beings, that all beings may be happy, that all beings may be peaceful, and that all beings everywhere may be free. So please take a moment and maybe um, greet the person near you and maybe don't ask them what they do. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.